The more we study history, the more we learn that we should not concentrate only on the final act, the cataclysmic event itself, but also on all the stages that led up to it. The moral message that arises from this is the importance of sharpening our consciousness of the unfolding of the past, seeing how the branches sprout forth from the roots. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 260, Every Individual a Temple. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It was during one ninth of Av, during the midst of the morning rituals, that Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik put forward a somewhat startling thesis. The Jewish people, he asserted, were mourning for more than two temples. This may seem at first blush somewhat strange. After all, we know that there were only two temples that crowned Jerusalem, one destroyed by Babel, another by Rome, and for this we mourn on the ninth of Av. These temples, known in Hebrew as Batei Mikdash, and their absence is, first and foremost, the source of our mourning. But Rabbi Soloveitchik argued that there were many other temples as well that were lost, because every Jewish home destroyed in our history was a tiny temple. Or as he put it, they were Batei Mikdash in miniature. Quote, on Tisha B'Av, we mourn not only the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem, but also all those individual Batei Mikdash in miniature that were wiped off the map. End quote. Rabbi Soloveitchik then recounted a story that he had heard from a Jew who survived the Holocaust. This man's mother, a righteous woman from Vilna, had had a cat in her home, and in the afternoon on Yom Kippur, she would leave services just to feed her cat. Rabbi Soloveitchik continued as follows, quote, After the liberation from the Nazis, her son returned to Vilna and spent Yom Kippur there. His mother and all her acquaintances had been killed by the Germans. The only one who met him was the cat. He felt that the cat was waiting for him to feed it the way his mother had every Yom Kippur before she perished. People who survived, Rav Soloveitchik continued, have often told me that the sense of emptiness in their formerly vibrant home communities was unbearable. Anyone who knows what the Vilna shul was like on Yom Kippur before the war will appreciate how desolate it was when only a cat remained to greet you. This was stark testimony to the destruction. The people, the homes, and the Bate Mikdash in miniature were all gone. Only the cat remained. For this too we mourn on Tisha B'Av. To mourn not only the temple but individual lives and homes, this also lies at the heart of Jewish mourning. And if we look, we can perhaps discover this in the biblical book of mourning itself. In chapter 4 of Lamentations, or Echa, the description of the destruction of Jerusalem continues. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold. How are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? We are further told in verse 11 of the enemy's entry into the city itself. The Lord hath accomplished his fury. He hath poured out his fierce anger and hath kindled a fire in Zion, and it hath devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. This, of course, describes the Babylonians' breaching of besieged Jerusalem. But then soon after, another image is given. Verse 19. Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of the heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their traps. To what is this referring? The phrase, the anointed of the Lord, usually refers to a king, but who is this king that was caught in the trap? Who was pursued? This can perhaps be a reference to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, who attempted to flee the Babylonians and was caught and blinded. 
But for Rashi and much of Jewish tradition, this is a reference to another, earlier king, Josiah, who ascended the throne at the age of eight following the reigns of his grandfather Menashe, who plunged all Israel into idolatry, and of his father, who persisted in Menashe's paganism. We have met Josiah before, so let us only briefly summarize his story. Josiah, as we saw, is impossible not to love. He was the most relentlessly optimistic and hopeful figure in the Bible. Would that we had a memoir from him explaining the spiritual stirrings that occurred in his teenage years. We do not know how, but somehow in an age where the God of Israel was not truly worshipped for decades, this boy king somehow found his way back to the faith and legacy of David. He sought to repair the temple to restore monotheism. And then, at that moment, a Torah scroll was found by the high priest who brought it to the king. Josiah read therein a particular passage which appears to be Deuteronomy's declaration that if Israel betrayed its covenant, then its land would be destroyed and the people exiled. Seeking to know if that was what truly awaited his kingdom, he sought out the seer who lived near the Temple Mount, Chulda. Chulda informed Josiah that though he, the king, would not live to see it, Jerusalem was destined for destruction. But rather than fatalistically accept the decree, Josiah led a national repentance movement destroying every bit of idolatry that remained, not only within his own kingdom, but even in northern Israel. A national repentance movement was launched and the possibility suddenly of a golden age presented itself. But it was, alas, all in vain. Josiah fell in battle, fighting against a pharaoh whom prophecy had told him not to fight. Thus, the book of Chronicles tells us as follows. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died, and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the book of Chronicles adds as follows. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and the singing women spoke of Josiah and their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. It is based on this verse that Jewish tradition sees references to Josiah in the biblical book of Lamentations itself. Why did Josiah refuse to allow Pharaoh to pass through his land? This is itself a mystery for which answers are offered. We address this when we study the book of Kings, and we will perhaps address it again when we study Chronicles. For now, we will mention one Talmudic suggestion, which is that Josiah was so confident regarding what his repentance movement had achieved that he thought he had already attained an eschatological era of peace where no foreign armies would enter Israel. Be that as it may, Rashi's interpretation of the verse referencing Josiah is built on the assumption that woven into the book of Lamentations, and particularly in this portion of the book, is the elegy of Jeremiah not only for Jerusalem, but for one man, this one king that died. But why should this be? Why should the mourning for one man be built into Lamentations? And if Josiah himself fell in battle many years before Jerusalem was destroyed, why does his death suddenly become part of the Tisha B'Av elegies? Many answers can be offered, but we will put forward two. The first, as many note, is that Josiah represented the final chance to save the temple, to preserve Jerusalem. His death made the destruction all the more likely. Therefore, on Tisha B'Av, we look back at earlier moments 
that ultimately brought about Jerusalem's fall. In a similar sense, Jews maintain, at a different time of the year, a fast day that marks not the destruction of Jerusalem, but the moment on the 10th of Tevet when the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem began. As Rabbi Aaron Luchlstein has pointed out, there is a larger lesson here about the Jewish approach to history. He said, quote, Why do we mark the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem and not just the breaching of the walls or the destruction of the temple? The message of this commemoration is that after the destruction, we must trace its sources and mark its stages. We must look backwards to events that are not earth-shattering and perceive how the seeds of the destruction on the 9th of Av were planted on the 10th of Tevet. The more we study history, the more we learn that we should not concentrate only on the final act, the cataclysmic event itself, but also on all the stages that led up to it. The moral message that arises from this is the importance of sharpening our consciousness of the unfolding of the past, seeing how the branches sprout forth from the roots, end quote. Thus, similarly, we look back in the midst of mourning on Tisha B'Av and ponder the possibility that the temple could have been saved, ponder what might have happened decades earlier had Josiah succeeded in his own attempts at turning back the tide of the decreed destruction. This, then, is one possibility as to why Echa itself would express mourning for the death of Josiah, the Mashiach Hashem, the king of David's anointed dynasty. But Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who himself offers several interpretations, of why we mourn Josiah, suggested inter alia something important that he emphasized elsewhere in his discussions about the rituals and liturgy of Tisha B'Av, that the mourning for one individual built into our national mourning highlights how for Jews, every individual's destruction is itself a source of terrible sadness. Every individual is a world, or we might say, building on what we quoted before, every individual is a temple. After all, as Rabbi Soloveitchik himself once noted, If David merited to give Israel the vision of the temple, it was because he showed us, through the Psalms, the sanctification of the interiority of the human being, how every individual life, with its yearnings and its joys and its dedications, is an embodiment of a temple. It is a physical body with a spiritual spark within it. Thus, Jewish mourning reflects the Jewish veneration of life, and therefore the Jewish mourning for individual lives. Following the destruction of the Second Temple, the Roman Emperor Vespasian struck a commemorative coin communicating the conquest of Jerusalem to the world. On one side, the coin featured a sneering face of Vespasian. On the other, one saw a Judean date palm under which one could see a Jewish soldier who had been deprived of his weapons with his hands tied, as well as a woman of Judea sitting under the date palm in abject mourning. The coin is meant to be a celebration by the Romans of their might and of how profoundly they wreaked destruction upon Judea and its Jews. So many centuries after this coin was issued, in 1958, the State of Israel minted a response to Judea Capta, a coin featuring an image of free Jews, the depiction of a man engaged in planting, and a woman playing with her child under a palm tree. One can read above the image words in Latin, Israel Liberata. Thus, one can discover a powerful contrast between the ancient image of Rome and that put forward by modern Israelis that was itself so profoundly and traditionally Jewish. One sees in this contrast not only two very different societies, but also a conflict between very different worldviews, a worldview that glorifies in violence and death and a worldview that celebrates life and love. And if the Jewish people endure, while so many enemies from before Rome 
to today have ended up on the ash heap of history. It is, Jews assert, because the God of history is not a bystander and not neutral in this conflict of perspectives. And that therefore, ultimately, the society and tradition that loves life and that cherishes the preciousness of individual life and sees in the sanctity of individual homes but a mikdash in miniature will ultimately triumph over societies that glorify destruction and death. On the 9th of Av, we mourn how the forces of death extinguished so many precious lives and destroyed so many tiny temples. But in the face of those forces of death, we also mark the sublime fact that those forces have all, one by one, died themselves, while it remains a fact that I'm Yisrael Chai. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week. Wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. Signing off.